In the past two years, a number of major American cities have experienced spikes of homicides, and mayors and police chiefs have been under a ton of pressure to do something. We have not seen Houston homicide numbers like we're seeing now in decades. Homicides in the city of Los Angeles, they're up 11.8%. The Baton Rouge area, Shreveport, Alexandria, and Lafayette all had record number of homicides in 2021. Philadelphia's violence is not showing any signs of slowing down. The city has now clocked 99 homicides just so far this year. In response, some of these officials are turning to a new policing strategy called Place Network Investigations. And it's just what the name would suggest. It's a philosophy that focuses on places and how places allow criminal networks to form and to thrive and what can be done to try to break up these patterns of crime. That's investigative reporter Amy Britton. She has been reporting on policing for The Post, and she noticed a pattern. Several police departments in large cities around the country all seem to be turning to this strategy. But to her, that was a surprise. As I learned in my reporting, it has a complicated history and associations with a tragic case. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, April 20th. Today, we look at why so many police departments are focusing on places to fight crime, whether that approach works, and if it does, at what cost. Okay, Amy's going to take it from here. If you want to understand why so many police departments are now focused on place, it's helpful to start at the beginning with criminologist David Weisberg. There are streets and cities with a lot of violent crime. Weisberg is a professor at George Mason University and the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. He helped pioneer the notion that places are very important in policing. One of his landmark studies looked at data from nearly 30,000 segments of Seattle streets. And when I looked at the data, something struck me as rather interesting, which is that from the first year we looked, 1989, to 14 years later, every year, uh, about 5% of the streets produce 50% of the crime. In other words, Weisberg and his co-authors found that a very small number of Seattle streets were responsible for roughly half of all the city's crime. And that pattern wasn't unique to Seattle. He did studies in Tel Aviv and New York and got similar results. But that suggested this kind of, you know, general concentration, right? What I call the law of crime concentration of places. Mm -hmm. In every city, you know, 1% of the streets are producing, or at least in most larger cities, about 25% of crime. These concentrated areas of crime, they're typically called hotspots. And if what he found was true, it suggested that police should be allocating their resources differently. If most of the crime is occurring in a relatively small number of streets, the police shouldn't be spreading their resources everywhere. They should be focusing on these hotspots. The use of hotspot strategies spread widely. By the mid-2010s, dozens of cities across the country had tried this form of policing. Police chiefs love to talk about hotspots and how they're going to make these places safer. Hotspots. Those hotspot areas. The hotspots have been the same hotspots for decades. And there was growing evidence that the strategy worked. One recent academic review looked at hotspot policing interventions over several decades. 
it found that nearly 80% of them reported noteworthy reductions in crime and disorder. So as criminologists became more focused on the importance of places, you started to see more ideas, more tools, and more models emerge. More questions, too. Often we will think about, why does crime concentrate here but not there? So what is it about this location that makes crime stick? That's Tamara Harold. She's an associate professor at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. She says that researchers started to notice that some places were, quote, sticky. Crimes happened there repeatedly, even after the police intervened. We deploy police resources. We deploy city resources. We put pressure on place managers. This crime always seems to return to the same location. So they started thinking, let's not just send cops to these places. Let's send other people, too. They might bring in the housing department to get rid of abandoned buildings or work with utility companies to improve street lighting. Another team might paint over graffiti. It was an all-hands-on-deck approach. The thinking went like this. If these people could help change the environment in a more holistic way, maybe crime wouldn't return. It's really about changing the dynamics of space so that those activities are, are less likely to occur in the future. Harold's model eventually became known as Place Network Investigations, or PNI for short. The first city to test it out was Cincinnati, starting back in 2016. We struggled in Cincinnati, I think, at the beginning to understand how do you implement this. That's Cincinnati Police Captain Matthew Hammer. He was involved in the early experiments there. The amount of resources that it takes to work through some of these challenges, to untangle some of these problems, um, is extraordinary. For example, there was one neighborhood where 26 people were shot within a few blocks during a two-year span. When police went in to try to figure out what was going on, they noticed that the area was run down. There was graffiti and tall, unmowed grass. Harold told me that at one of these properties, police found guns hidden in the grass. There were offenders that were stashing guns in this grass so that if they happened to be stopped by a police officer, they didn't have a gun on them, but they were engaged in open-air drug dealing and they wanted weapons nearby. So the city mowed the grass and took other steps to try to disrupt how people were using this area to commit crimes. The program showed a lot of promise. In its first year, Cincinnati reported a more than 80% reduction in shooting victims in the area where the grass had been cut. Seeing the strategy unfold has really allowed me to believe that this is a great um, potential advancement for policing. It gives us an opportunity to be better at what we do. Other cities soon took notice of this early success including Louisville, Kentucky. Louisville police leaders traveled to Cincinnati in 2019 to sit in on meetings with Captain Hammer and other officials. Within months, Louisville had set up its own team, inspired by Harold's model. They would begin this new policing strategy along a few blocks in West Louisville, including a street called Elliott Avenue. Police have said that crime data pointed them there. On Elliott Avenue, there were residential homes, some of them vacant. 
that police believed were connected to the drug trade. Police started to track the cars and people who came by these homes. And that very first night, one of the cars they saw was registered to a 26-year-old hospital technician named Brianna Taylor. Taylor didn't live on Elliott Avenue. In fact, she lived in an apartment more than 10 miles away. But her ex-boyfriend, Jamarcus Glover, spent a lot of time on Elliott Avenue, according to police, and had a car registered in Taylor's name. He also had a felony record and had served prison time for selling cocaine. So police became very interested in Glover and his ties to this area. And by extension, they became very interested in anyone they believed who could be helping him, including Taylor. Then they're going getting search warrants for for cell phones. They're putting surveillance trackers on vehicles. They're basically treating these guys like they're terrorists or they're Pablo Escobar. This is Sam Aguilar. He's an attorney for Taylor's family. And the crazy thing is, is that if they were Pablo Escobar terrorists, maybe all these tools and these toys and these resources would have been worth it. But this is a network of individuals that probably were low to mid-level drug dealers. Just like in Cincinnati, this wasn't solely a police effort. At least one other city agency got involved to improve this stretch of Elliott Avenue. But the end game is what was so questionable because you're, you're telling, again, five police officers out of 75 in this division that their whole job is to basically get these people out of this house. Meanwhile, police tracked a car that Taylor's ex-boyfriend drove across town to Taylor's apartment. They believed that he was using her apartment to stash his drug money. And they cited that theory in their request for a warrant to search her apartment. Police officers forced their way into her apartment in the middle of the night. Taylor's boyfriend, Kenneth Walker, believed they were intruders in open fire. Louisville officers returned fire, killing Taylor. Police did not recover any drugs or cash in Taylor's apartment. Her death became a landmark case in the push for police reforms across the country. I asked Aguilar what he thought about Louisville's place-based investigation squad, which was called PBI for short. He told me he viewed the team's strategy as misguided at best, and at its worst, possibly dangerous. So in, in your mind, do you believe that you can draw a straight line from TBI to Brianna's death? Oh, absolutely. Without a doubt. The goal was disruption of a violent crime network in a dedicated area. Well, going to Brianna Taylor's place is not going to accomplish that. Aguilar is not alone in his criticism. I spoke with several criminal justice reform advocates who were also concerned about this new strategy. You'll hear from one a little bit later. As for Harold, the creator of this model, I also asked her about what happened in Louisville. How do you feel about the fact that your strategy is unfortunately linked to um, a fatal outcome in that case? Uh, execution of search warrants is common police business, and obviously this particular search warrant resulted in a horrific tragedy. It's not a defining feature of this 
initiative in the sense that what this initiative aims to do, what Place Network Investigations aims to do, is really to bring in city resources to remove the need for continuous police enforcement. Harold was pretty clear on how she viewed what happened in Louisville as an anomaly, certainly a tragedy, but one that did not represent the place-based strategy she'd pioneered. She said that while she shared her plans and materials with Louisville police, she had no involvement in their investigations or the decisions they made. About 11 months after Taylor's death, Louisville police officially disbanded their place-based investigations team and ended their use of the strategy. But other cities have been open to giving this approach a try. At the time of Taylor's death, three cities were using Harold's strategy. Now, it's up to nine. Seven are Harold's official partners, which means that she and other academics will be evaluating outcomes in these cities with an outside grant of more than $2 million. Others have cited her research as inspiration. One of them is Dallas, Texas. After the break, we'll go there. We'll hear from police officers who believe this is the way forward and members of the community who aren't so sure. Dallas had faced a huge spike in homicides in 2020, their highest numbers in more than 15 years. Police had responded with a new crime reduction plan, one that combined the two strategies we've been talking about. Hotspots, where they'd concentrate resources in the 50 most violent parts of the city, and place network investigations, where they'd bring together stakeholders from other city agencies to drill down into so-called sticky places, places that were still experiencing violence even after they'd tried other traditional law enforcement tactics. At the time I visited last fall, Dallas was in the thick of the hotspot plan, but the PNI plan was in its infancy. As soon as I got there, I was on the move. I sat in on police strategy meetings. We need to make sure that we cover that 4599 West Davis. I rode along with officers and squad cars. My 400 and I stopped to talk to a lot of people just out in their neighborhoods. Someone gets shot over here almost every day. One of my first stops was the neighborhood in southeast Dallas. I told you our division was much more unique than in southwest. <laughs> we were on Hamilton Avenue. It's a residential street just a few blocks away from the State Fair of Texas. I had driven to Hamilton Avenue with Major Rick Rivas. Dallas police were very interested in this part of Hamilton Avenue. Officials and criminologists had divided the city into tens of thousands of what they call grids. Each grid is no larger than a football field. A grid could be a gas station, an apartment complex, or even a stretch of residential homes. Officials had crunched the numbers and come up with a list of the 50 most violent grids. Those were their hotspots. And Hamilton Avenue was one of them. We got out of the car and I took a look around. Grass was overgrown in one lot. A dog was chained up outside of one home. And a house painted bright blue appeared to be completely abandoned. Wooden boards covered the windows and doors. Three women were hanging out on the porch playing dominoes. They had blankets and pillows and looked to be living there. Because this is a hot spot, police are now supposed to be here several times a week 
doing surveillance and looking for repeat offenders. And I wanted to know how people living here felt about that. So I walked over to talk to these women. It's a vacant house. Uh It's a vacant house. Okay. Yeah. So do you have permanent housing? It's just an icon that we all stand out here. They were open with me and that they were struggling with addiction to drugs and alcohol. They hadn't had permanent housing for quite some time. Um, Do you feel safe staying here? Mm -hmm. You do? Mm -hmm. Do you sleep out here at night? Not specifically out here, but in the area. Okay. As I was talking to them, several more police officers arrived and were just watching us interact. I asked the three women how it made them feel to see that level of police presence in their neighborhood. I don't, them, doing, them doing their job doesn't bother me. It's the way they do their job that bothers me. This is Latasha Langley. She likes to be called Natasha. They're very rude, you know what I'm saying? And um, there's, there's nothing positive that comes out their mouth, you know? I mean, it just, they just, they, 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 they use their badge. You know, they use their authority in the wrong way. You're not doing so never mind our damn business, you know what I'm saying? And they think that every time they see a group of black folks together, it has to be some drugs going on. Yeah. So, so, uh, so, you know, it just got to be a crime going on. No, we just, we just like to hang out. That's what we do. You know what I'm saying? Black people. They felt they weren't doing anything wrong and that police were intruding in their lives. After I spoke with these women, I couldn't help but think about the stretch of vacant houses on Elliott Avenue in Louisville. Police had focused on those houses because they believed they were linked to the drug trade. And here I was, staring at a vacant house in a similar hotspot in Dallas. To me, it brought up a lot of questions about the types of places that become the focus of these policing strategies. And what people who live in these grids actually need— and whether police are solving any of those larger issues. I left the three women on the porch and walked back over to Major Rivas. He was standing on the sidewalk nearby with some other officers. How you doing? I told him what these women had just told me. You feel like that they're being targeted for just living their lives? Rivas told me that in his eyes, the situation is complicated. For starters, these women weren't legally allowed to be on this property. The property owner has a criminal trespass affidavit, and they continue to come back. We could kick them all out right now, but how's that going to look? Then, as we were getting into the squad car, Major Rivas told me something I had missed while I had been talking to Natasha. Another police officer had observed evidence of an alleged drug operation at a home right across the street. He says that house directly behind us. They had three separate customers come up and do hand-to-hand transactions uh, right where we were standing there. Oh, really? Yeah. But, But at least it's now on our radar, you know? This seemed like a big point of tension with this place-based strategy. People in the grid saying there was no reason for police to be spending that much time there. But police were telling me the grids were exactly where they needed to be in order to curb crime across the city. Later that week, I had a chance to talk to Dallas's police chief about what I'd seen so far. Hi, how are you? Good, how are you? Eddie Garcia took the helm of the department early last year. 
He worked with criminologists at the University of Texas San Antonio to craft the city's new crime reduction plan. I asked him about this area on Hamilton Avenue and some of the concerns I heard from Natasha and her friends. Is that a situation that should be law enforcement priority or is this a situation where it's more of a social services issue of getting resources, getting treatment plans to people who are in um, conditions of extreme need? Number one, we're not going to hide behind the fact that that is a violent crime grid in the city and we need deep presence there. There's no question about it and we're not going to hide from that. However, we also want to solve issues and solve problems. We can't do everything. And no, our role is not to, our role should not necessarily be uh, impacting these lower level type of crimes that are even within the grid. Uh, that we do need assistance, that we do need help. Solving a problem isn't necessarily arresting people. Solving problems without arresting people. That's actually a core tenet of the place network investigation strategy. But remember, at the time of my visit, this PNI model was still getting off the ground. When do you see that plan actually being in place? Because right now, they're getting the hotspot strategy there. They're not getting the, like, we're going to come in and help you strategy. Well, again, first things first, right? We need to save lives first. Mm -hmm. That's number one. Getting people help and ensuring that people want help. Because I will tell you this, and I think you know this. I mean, they may say one thing to you, uh, but also people will say a completely different thing to other people and don't want help. And that's a dynamic that I hear across the board from homeless solutions mm -hmm. from a lot from a lot of places. So uh, to say that, uh, because you know, to to a reporter and what they say um, to other people if they want the help and they need it, and what they would say to a police officer, "Do you need help or, or want help?" Uh, are are two different things. I had asked Natasha and her friends about why they didn't go to a homeless shelter. And they were candid about how some of their addiction struggles make it difficult for them to agree to shelter rules that prohibit drugs and alcohol. These situations are often complex with no simple solutions. And Chief Garcia said that it was really important to him to have the community's buy-in. Good is reduction of crime. Great is if you have that reduction of crime with an increase in community trust. Right, because I'll be honest with you, I won't even say it's good. It's fair. You, you, you are not successful. You have to have both. It's almost failure. Reducing crime at the extent of community trust is failing. Uh, we need to do both. He also told me that he didn't think I was seeing the full picture, the potential of what the strategy could look like years down the road. Seeing that, he said, would take more time. It's not simply a enforcement plan. I mean, it is weeding and seeding in each grid. Weeding and seeding. In other words, the hotspot strategy was like pulling out the weeds, the violence. But the place network investigation strategy would be like planting the seeds. Once all of these other citywide partners were involved, it would be like a season of growth for these areas. We need to weed the, the criminal element, uh, that's, that's uh, responsible for violent crime. There's no question about it. But we're also trying to seed those same areas with positivity. And that's part of the plan that I hope doesn't get missed. It's a nice idea. But let's remember, we're talking about people here. And I can't imagine that they would appreciate being described as weeds. As to whether Chief Garcia is right or not, it will take some time to find out.
Before I left town, I went on as many ride-alongs as I could. I always feel like I get the most from my reporting after speaking with people in the community. Sometimes you hear and see things you don't expect. One night, I went to a hot spot in southwest Dallas with Richard Foy. At the time, he was a major. Since then, he's been promoted to deputy chief. We were shadowing some other officers and tried to stay out of their way. No, there it is. One officer was in an unmarked vehicle. He was checking license plates, looking for stolen cars or other crimes. We were by a stretch of motels, including one called the Super 7 Inn. From what Major Foy told me, this area has been plagued by shootings and other violent crime over the past few years. Echo 471 traffic. So he's pulling someone over right here. That's him, yep. Can we go up behind them? An officer had pulled over a Dodge Charger sedan. It was unclear to me at first why the car was being stopped. Is he saying why he's pulling them over? He will tell them. He'll tell the dispatcher. I saw an officer approach the driver's window. There were three black men inside the car. The police officer started to ask the driver some questions, and I began to narrate what I was seeing at the moment. So he's asking if there are firearms in the car. He just asked the police officer, what are y'all charging me for? And they've got him up against the vehicle and they're searching him and they're, is he handcuffing him? The officer took something small and put it on top of the car. I couldn't see what it was. That would be a marijuana joint that he just put on the, on the hood of the car, I would, I'm guessing. And now there are four officers here and they have probable cause because of the smell to enter the car and search it. I haven't been up there yet. I'm not, I'm not. I mean, I smell it myself, but. That, my guess is that's what we're talking okay. about. But, smelling marijuana. But we do have to, we do have to talk to the officers before we make the assumption. There are two more officers who have pulled up, so now there are six officers here. And these men look pretty young, especially the one on the end. It's like a teenager. In a matter of minutes, this had turned into quite a scene. The three young men from the car were now sitting on the curb, their heads in their hands, just kind of waiting to see how this was going to play out. I noticed that there was a small crowd of men that had gathered to watch. They were standing in a grassy field across the street. So I walked over. My name is Amy. I'm a reporter. I'm not a cop. I'm with the Washington One of them was a black man carrying a plastic bag from a convenience store. His name was Christopher Middleton. And just as I was trying to explain to him why I was there, about the hot spots and the grids, he stopped me and said he knew exactly what I was talking about. I'm just telling you about the hot spots. Really? I know about the hot okay, spots. Okay, talk to B- me. Basically, the hot spots ready is like, it's, this is a hot spot. This is the area of high crime, high drugs, and whatever. Chris told me that he had lived at the Super 7 Inn for months now with his partner and their two young kids. And he said that the motel had not really felt like a safe place to live. Do you think I'm, it's justified to have more police here? It's only justified by what's done in the area. It is? Like meaning more, violence. Yeah, more violence and more recidivism, period. Yeah. I pointed across the street at the men who were sitting on the curb, the ones who had just been pulled over. How often do you see uh, a scene like this that we're looking at right now? Uh, you see this three or four times a day, maybe. 
Other people had told me that the increased police presence bothered them. They found it intrusive. But not Chris. Simply put, he was a father trying to keep his family safe. And if the police can help give him that, he's okay with them. I left Chris and the other men and walked back over to Major Foy. It seemed like the traffic stop was wrapping up, so I asked him what they had learned. Foy told me that officers had indeed found a small amount of marijuana in the car, but it wasn't enough to result in an arrest. He said the officers also found an empty gun magazine, which is used to hold ammunition, but there was nothing illegal about that here in Dallas. And they found what appeared to be Xanax, but that would need to be tested by lab later on. But none of those factors really played into the outcome here. Instead, the officers ended up arresting the 22-year-old driver for warrants on two misdemeanor traffic tickets. After the driver was taken away, I approached the other two young men who had also been in the car. Neither had been charged with the crime, but I realized that I was approaching them at a vulnerable moment. You don't, you don't have to talk to me if you don't want to talk to me. I'm... I asked them how they felt about all of this. Mind if I said... yeah. One of them said I could call him Jay. He didn't want to give his full name. The other young man was named Marquez Pinagraf. M-A-R-Q-U-E-Z. Marquez told me that he was a 22-year-old college student. I asked them if they knew they were in a police hotspot. Is that something that you guys are aware of, that they've changed their policing strategy? No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say not necessarily, no. We always getting pulled over, so. It's like. Especially over especially over here. You talking about the area. Especially, especially if you grew up over here. So like, yeah, if you grew up over here, you know, know it's it been happening since you was a kid. You've been getting pulled over when you was a kid, you know. Marquez said he had been pulled over by police more than a dozen times in his life. I think they treat me as they treat the average black person in America. And what do you mean by that? They're not really with yeah, us. They're not our friends. They're not your friends. They're not our friends. They're not. They're not there. They're not here to protect. And then them. when something do bad happen, and then you you choose to call the police. The one time you choose to call the police, they're not gonna show up for an hour. Exactly. Like, Ain't no African American, male or female, thinking they got police help. I guarantee you, they not. I walked over to one of the officers involved in the stop, Officer Joseph McComas, and I told him what the young men had just told me, that they felt as if race had played a role here. McComas, who is white, rejected that notion. We're, we're not just saying we want to pick that car over because it has three young black males in it. Okay. We ran the tag. It comes back expired. To him, traffic stops are a vital part of this strategy. Usually, you know, when you start smelling marijuana, you can find other stuff. You can find a gun. And we found Xanax. We found stuff that leads to a gun, but didn't actually find a gun. So this just proves of why we do certain things. This traffic stop stuck out in my mind more than anything else I had seen in Dallas. Police said that this was a vital part of their place-based strategy, that the end justifies the means. But when it came down to it, a young man had just been sent off to jail for some warrants for unpaid traffic tickets. I wanted to talk with someone who could help me better understand these dynamics. So I called Andrew Guthrie Ferguson, a law professor at American University and the author of the book, The Rise of Big Data Policing. 
He's a critic of these types of strategies. If you just flood a zone of uh, an area in a city with police, like crime will go down. That's true, uh, but it also has really negative consequences, and it's not part of the reason why we had racial justice protests across America and a concern about police power, uh, because that sort of invasion really wasn't uh, terribly uh, positively received by communities. I told him about what I had seen in Dallas, particularly with the traffic stop outside of the Super 7N. He said it was not surprising to him that police would zero in on this type of location, regardless of what philosophy they were using. If you asked any police officer a decade ago about, hey, where are the places we might want to be on the lookout for? They probably would say, you know, cheap motels are the location where people can use it for uh, drugs and drug dealing. They can use it for sexual trafficking and other kinds of crimes. But now with the idea of, oh, this is our strategy based on data-driven policing, they can justify the increased police presence. They can then come up with extra justifications for why people are being stopped. And the thing that you that we don't think about is it's actually self-fulfilling, right? So that stop that you witnessed is now a data point for future areas of crime. So when they go back in a month from now and look at, well, where were the crimes that occurred, they're going to use that as a data point for, oh, this must be a hotspot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought about the fact a lot that, uh, you know, I live in a cul-de-sac in Arlington. No one is sitting outside of our cul-de-sac with a license plate reader. Ferguson called this strategy a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you turn all of your attention to one area, of course you'll see more crime, and of course you'll continue policing that area. It's a cycle, he says, that has led to harm in communities of color. So what would you say to, you know, police chiefs to counter this by saying, look, we're under historic modern pressure to get homicide rates down, to make communities safer. This is the best we've got. This is the best we've got in our toolbox, and we're going to go with a data-driven approach, what would you say to those individuals? I think they're repeating the same mistakes that we made in the last decade, and they shouldn't make those same mistakes again. Ferguson thinks we shouldn't even be having these conversations with police, that we need to shake up the way we look at the root causes of crime. The place-based strategy I had tracked from Cincinnati to Louisville to Dallas actually had that idea at its core. Remember, they wanted police chiefs to bring in other agencies, like housing, social services, and utilities, although the police would still be in charge. But Ferguson says it's just not realistic to expect police to solve all of these problems in vulnerable communities. It's the political pressure, the political world of asking chiefs really difficult questions of a chief. What are you going to do about crime? And the real answer to that, of course, is, well, why don't you fund schools? Why don't you fund communities? Why don't you fund jobs? But they're police chiefs. They don't actually have those tools or levels to do anything. So all they can do is come up with an answer that sounds good, which is, don't worry, we have a new policing strategy, which is really just the old policing strategy with new names, uh, and they're moving forward with that. By the end of 2021, homicides in Dallas had gone down citywide by 13% from the previous year. And violent crime was down 9%. And according to the University of Texas San Antonio criminologists who are guiding Dallas on this plan, 
Within the hotspots, violent crime was down more than 50% compared to the three-month period before the experiment. But can Dallas police actually credit their citywide drop in violent crime to their new policing strategy? They say yes, but they can't prove it. One criminologist advising Dallas on their plan told me that for all of the talk of these experiments, the city isn't a science lab. It's the real world. So a lot of factors could be causing crime to go up or down, and you can't control for that in a data analysis. But if you talk to police officers and city leaders, they believe that this plan is working and that it's here to stay. As for Louisville, where Breonna Taylor was shot and killed, that city saw a record number of homicides in 2021. Since Louisville scrapped their place-based investigation strategy, they've turned to a new strategy, one that focuses on violent offenders and illegal guns. As they've described it, it's about knowing who you are looking for and why, rather than where. Amy Britton is an investigative reporter for The Post. This story was produced by Bishop Sand and edited by Robin Amer and David Fallis. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.